Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at Cato and Editor of Regulation Magazine. It's been a long time, Peter. Oh, people, are, people, it, people who just started listening this year, I think it might have been, we uh, don't understand the theme music that, that you're playing that is just for you. The cult of free thoughts. <laughs> just gonna, we're just going to have, all right, Peter, learn us good. <laughs> Go. No, that, that, that's often what we talk about in yeah, episodes of usually. Peter, just to just, just say. So this but, one, I think we're, we're talking about science and the place of science in public policy making. And so I want to start with um, – a while back, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted out uh, a policy proposal of sorts. Um, he said, Earth needs a virtual country, which he named hashtag rationalia, with what he said was a one-line constitution, which reads, all policy shall be based on the weight of evidence. Sounds like a pretty good idea. It does. I'm... One of the few people at Cato with the science background, I was a chemistry major at MIT right up until the very end, which is a long story we won't get into. Um, and here at Cato, I'm often perceived as being someone who favors data analysis and rational analysis of things and uh, sometimes get frustrated with my colleagues who don't know enough about statistics and science and data and things like that. But I am, I disagree with the statement that you just um, made. And thus I'm sort of someone with a science background, but I've been around people with other backgrounds enough to learn that um, science is necessary and important in decisions, policy decisions, but it is not sufficient in my view and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, it's interesting because last week's episode, we had Terrence Keeley on to talk about the production of science and how science is done and maybe politicized in certain ways. But you're saying something a little bit different. I mean, maybe that's true, but it's also this question of should we just say science can solve public policy, whatever the science is, even if it's bad science, right? If it's like, well, I, I'll, I'll give you the the example that I want to use from recent newspaper analysis that drove me to think about talking about this today was uh, the Washington Post. Right at the end of the last year, their environmental correspondent Juliet Eilperin wrote an article that said. Um, the EPA Scientific Advisory Board had issued three draft reports that concluded that three proposed Trump environmental rules conflict with established science, right? And then the therefore, not explicitly stated in the article, but you could read between the lines was, oh, when there are particularly mostly environmental questions, um, something called science should decide and or scientists and their advanced training and what they figure out about the world, in effect, should tell us what to do about climate change or a particular matter or uh, rivers and harbors or water pollution, any number of questions like that, that science should decide. And then what's interesting is Trump has uh, changed the composition of, of these science advisory boards uh, greatly during his administration. So two-thirds of the members of the board that wrote this report were Trump appointees. And they were clearly different ideologically than the scientists that they had replaced. But they, too, were kind of chest out front saying, 
we're being ignored here. And we think, uh, <clears throat> again, something called science, like Tyson's quote that, ty- that science and scientists and what they think um, should determine what policy ought to be. The problem here, though, I mean, so we can we can think of plenty of examples where we have scientific evidence or any kind of you know we've got we've got evidence of X, and then policy people prefer to do Y. So take take like anti-vax, right? Like there's one where the science says you know to prevent disease you need to vaccinate. There's there's it, something called herd immunity. Right. It, and, it, it exists. And the evidence is fairly overwhelming, but for a combination of sometimes political and sometimes just spending too much time reading in a Facebook echo chamber, people reject that and make decisions. Um, and so you can imagine with this, this these environmental panels that, you know, the issue is simply that they've made a recommendation, but for political reasons, you know, Trump's base doesn't want more environmental regulation or wants different kinds of environmental regulation, they're going to consciously ignore. That's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is <clears throat> that when you have scientific findings and we'll bracket the the issues that we talked about last week with Terence Keeley of how much politics goes into the the scientific findings on the supply side, right? Um, and we'll say we let's Let's say the science is good science. Let's assume it's true, um, whatever that means. The the procedure for getting from we have a set of facts about the nature of things to what do we do with that? What do we do next? What is the right policy to grow from that? And it sounds like you're saying that the issue is more like that second one, is it's that the science a, yes. kind of underdetermines the policy. Yes, although – I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about the vaccination case in my thinking before our, our discussion today, and that I'm a sort of I might be more science on that one, which is the um, the decision of some people not to vaccinate their children for whatever reasons um, has consequences for others, and again, what therefore so that I think. Even the anti-vaxxers would agree with my statement that their decision for their own children has consequences for others eventually once so-called herd immunity is – in other words, a, a few people can uh, not be vaccinated. But once we reach a an important threshold and that number is what, 5 Six, seven percent. I don't know the, the Some, right. Something around there's there. There's some think, number yeah. where, uh, quote, herd immunity is greatly, more greatly at risk because of their decision that we then have a dilemma between parental rights and the children in question and then other people's children. And science doesn't uh, say what to do, but it says if you don't have vaccination levels above a certain amount, <clears throat> more kids are going to get childhood diseases. Well, the interesting thing on the and, vax question, and we'll get, let me get this into what Aaron's question was, is that it's obviously a charged topic and some libertarians like to really get involved with it for parental rights purposes or things like this. But it, I think it actually highlights what we're talking about because there are, I don't know how many vaccinations, you know, the diseases you can vaccinate against. I mean, hundreds, I'm sure, minimum. And 
we talk about measles, and I think we're there. You're, you know, if you're cost benefit analysis, if you want your kids to survive, you should get measles vaccines. But then you have questions about like the HPV vaccine or something that is a much rarer disease, uh, typhus or something like this, that maybe it's not worth it to get the vaccine. And science doesn't answer those questions either, right? It doesn't, it, right? It, you can't say scientists have decided that you should get the typhus vaccine. And I'm like, uh, Probably not. If you had a zero risk threshold and you said there's a non-zero possibility you'll get typhus, which I, which maybe in the United States there, there is one, but science still doesn't answer that question. But if, unless they proclaim this sort of non-zero risk thing, it reminds the particulate matter thing we'll get into where, where if scientists say an over zero percent chance of getting a disease means we have decided you should get this vaccine. Um, but some, many vaccines you shouldn't get. If you're not leaving the United States or going to sub-Saharan Africa or things like this, and again, the same same point holds true, that science can give us the probabilities but not tell us what we should do. They – I mean, yes, that in effect economics or cost-benefit analysis or other values other than costs and benefits, religious values of one sort or another or – philosophical values drawn from uh, non-religious traditions, that those values create what economists call, because that's how I think, a, a weighting function, which is you have all these facts out there and then you have to add them up somehow, even though they're not cardinal, like numbers on a thermometer. You have to add up the various considerations that you have and then you as a person have to come to a decision, which is zero or one, usually, sometimes how much. And political dispute, policy dispute is often about the unobserved weighting functions that people have, which is because I really value this dearly, I am, or let's say liberty, I value freedom so highly that I'm willing to risk the possibility of fill in the blank by not doing something that science requests or scientists believe I, I should do. Well, I think the, that's the discussion. I we're, look at the, the Washington Post article you referenced. I mean, some of these things when I read, you know, the advisory board said the proposal neglects established science and shows that shows how contamination of groundwater, wetlands and waterways can spread to drinking water supplies. Well, this, of this course, they, they can. The, There's a non-zero chance, right. right? This refers to the Waters of the United States rule, which uh, the 1970, um, the Clean Water Act, 72. 72 Clean Water Act, said that the EPA shall issue permits for the discharge of stuff, pollutants and other things into navigable waters. Then it went on in the text of the statute to state that navigable waters are waters of the United States. Full stop. That's it. So then there's been two, three generations of, of legal dispute over how to interpret that statute with liberal, with democratic administrations, uh, tending to go on the, on the, um, Feds, the feds have more power. Expansive. Expansive yeah. end of, of the continuum. The birdbath in your backyard might be a watery of the United States. Yes. If it, yes. Yes. That would be the, uh, the funny way of describing that position. And the Supreme Court has weighed in on this twice and said, well, we think there are limits and 
they come up with another legal term called significant nexus of something <laughs> to describe that's now the word that defines when the Fed power ends and the state power begins in the regulation of discharge. And anyway, this um, clearly is, from from a scientific point of view, somewhat nonsensical in the following sense. Everything you put into some small thing eventually through the filtration of groundwater and whatever probably ends up eventually somewhere uh, in a navigable water. And But everyone realizes that the, the, the writers of the statute probably did not want the feds to have regulatory authority over everything. And therefore, this ends up being not a scientific decision, but a policy wrestling match, which is goes back and forth and back and forth. And we're now in one phase of that struggle. Um, but the scientific advisory report to the EPA acted as if science should and ought to decide what the waters of the United States are. And this, Beck, you mentioned that the weighting function, um, it, it seems like the role of a lot of science talk in both policymaking and in politics in general is to, is like, is almost using an attempt to sidestep having to argue about weighting functions that that you and I have different preferences different tastes um, and it's not just that it's complicated to argue about those things because there's so many determining factors and there's differences in values and where those values come from and it's hard to critique them and so on um, so it's it's hard to have that conversation but it's also hard to make arguments in it because you get down to well simply like my preferences, are better than yours and so you should be compelled to act in accord with my preferences instead of your preferences. And I think – I mean the majority of American politics simply is people doing that but they don't want to come out and say they're doing that because I think at some level all or at least most of us recognize that there's something untoward about doing that explicitly. And so – Instead the, of – I mean you're right. I mean behind everyone's back we go – I really don't like that person or their preferences and I really want to um, eliminate their preferences from the policy discussion. And guess what? Here's a here's an easy way to do it. Say science has determined that you are out of bounds as opposed to I don't like your preferences, which leads to a more difficult conversation. I mean, science, in my view, as someone who has a quasi-science background, is a... Most people don't understand it. Most people don't understand statistics. They don't understand what scientists do, how they argue, what the process is. It's a modern version of the priesthood. It acts as a silencer of further discussion in a way that most people say, wow, that person wears a white lab coat and seems really smart and maybe I ought to pay attention to them. And my little backyard pond, maybe it's a big polluter and I, you know, and I ought to listen. And to I that. can't read the scripture in the original Latin, so, okay. so or understand the scientific yes. papers. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, this also sounds a lot like the way the Constitution is used in a lot of American political debate, too. That, you know, most people, most Americans don't really, they've never read it. 
they don't know exactly what's in it. Um, they've heard some things about it. But if someone it. from Cato says something's unconstitutional, wow, even I don't always – I ask I ask Trevor and Aaron, <laughs> well, what does that mean? Right. But even outside of – I mean even outside of like the experts or the lawyers who you know, know more about it than the average person, they disagree about it in the same way scientists disagree. But but at like the kind of the average person level, you – I have my political preferences, so I like guns, you don't like guns, and I can just say Second Amendment rather than having the argument about preferences without – and you can – obviously the Second Amendment, there's long jurisprudential history about what this thing actually means, but most people don't know anything about that. It's simply like – It stops discussion. It stops discussion and yes. it's a way to sidestep having well, that conversation. Bringing up guns is interesting because uh, what Peter was saying previously about the science comes in and just says – this is the answer in the guns debate that that has come up too. Now, this is social science, so it's even squishier than to the environmental science. But you have people in the public health guns world, uh, which is a lot of yes. stuff coming out of Johns Hopkins, who say essentially scientists have determined you shouldn't have a gun in your house because the risks outweigh the benefits. And Every time I hear that, I'm just completely perplexed about how someone well, could they, even claim that. I mean, it's there's this it's a category. It's like I mean, but but has science determined whether I should have a pool? And does the fact that I love swimming factor into this at all? It's like no, science has determined that you shouldn't have a gun. Related to your discussion, notice the scrum that has occurred over whether. The CDC or the federal government is allowed to commission or spend money on, quote, gun research, gun research, yes, which they have been forever. And that's a, if anyone listening or hears this all the time, they just can't advocate for gun control. But notice from the Dems, right, the, the, the base is very. Right, Why does the GOP hate science? Yes. So, are they, what are they so, afraid of the CDC? So are you aware that in the omnibus appropriations bill that just passed in December, there is money now for the CDC to start again and not be banned from, uh, quote, gun research. Yes, and, I am, I'm aware of that. But, I, but what's interesting is notice that if you're for gun uh, restrictions, you think that having the scientific research is that will be the – an overused word now – trump card <laughs> in in your analysis of this decision. You can't say – I want gun control. You just you have to say the CDC says we need or ought to have gun control because they're scientists and somehow that makes your preferences better than if you just said well guns is really scary from my point of view and I think the second amendment allows the freedom of of the right to bear arms but even the Cato Institute has said um, it doesn't mean an unlimited license to do X, Y, or Z, and, and therefore, then we have to argue about it rather than say, "Well, I just want one more point does on that before your questionnaire." And one more point is just the C the idea there is that the CDC inevitably will come up with a prohibitionary kind of kind of suggestion because it doesn't take into account preferences. See, I mean, that, that's why I brought yeah, yeah, up. Yeah. That's why I brought in like. Swimming pools. No, I mean, right? I think our priors would agree with yeah. what you're saying. But if you just if you just looked at like dead kids, like let's say drowning in swimming pools, and said this is not worth the risk of having a swimming pool, and ignored liking to swim, uh, then you would come up with the conclusion that you shouldn't have swimming pools. And if you ignored liking to shoot, you would come up with the same conclusion, which is which is why it's a category here, right? Yeah, it's striking how much I've I've long thought that. 
America is increasingly secular place, and even I mean we. Our politics is increasingly secular in in the sense that even though we have a lot of enormous numbers of Americans have religious beliefs, but we tend not to make religious arguments in the public policy sphere. Not right? Not anymore. Um, we, we that's becoming increasingly the case. How much of of American public discourse um, and and politics of voters ends up looking like sublimated religion in in the sense that what we want is what religion is if we're if we're arguing about policy with religious overtones it's about like an appeal to universal truth right like my god who is you know either knows universal truth or determines universal truth says x and we should do what's in line with x um think about i mean I'll I'm totally agreeing with you and I'm sorry to butt in but I read National Academy of Sciences tomes, publications. The National Academy of Sciences publishes like a 700-page book reviewing the literature on X and then has bunches of therefores at the end that says the priests have gone into the cave. They've looked at the documents with footnotes and here's what we should do. And I think we need to be careful to not – it's not a perfect analogy because there is a huge amount of truth value to science. Yeah, it sounds like right, we're right. really anti-science. We're not anti-science. Right? I'm not. I, and, I, I, yeah, so exactly. Scientists find all sorts of truths. Our lives are immeasurably improved by the application of they those came, truths. Yeah, they came up with the technology to fake the moon landing. I mean, that's right. exactly. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but but that's not in in the policy debates and in politics and just kind of in ordinary like like Twitter spats. That's not really the role that science is playing, right? Like usually it's it's also it's these types of things happen around particularly contentious areas in science where there's there's disagreement or where the scientific facts are being very clearly used by the sides to advance priors in the same way as our and I asked the question I think of Patrick Eddington in our episode with him about intelligence gathering of you know you've spent all your time staring at these satellite maps trying to figure out if the tanks have moved and you've you've written up your report and you give it to the policymaker is the policymaker basing his decisions upon the data you've brought to him or is he using the data to support the decision he already he's looking for data that and I think in a lot of our debates it looks that way that people you know we the environmental movement wants us to – a lot of environmentalists simply just don't want us having as many kids, don't want us factory – there's like an aesthetic sort of thing. Um, and then we can we can grab onto this universal truth and use it to bludgeon people who disagree with us and, and to brand people who disagree with us, not as people who disagree with us, but as heretics from the universal truth. Like there's – you know, so that the Neil deGrasse Tyson thing is like, you know, there's just this evidence and it's – what we should do is just simply do what's in line with the evidence. You know, it's similar to if God says X, we should do what's in line with X. Um, and and I think that's where that's where these problems come in because then this this ticks backwards into the science itself. That the the scientists participating in these political debates and again, this isn't all scientists by any stretch of imagination um, start to see their role not just as gatherers of data and evidence and assessors of it, but they're the people who we're looking to to tell us what to do with it. Bill, Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah, and other people. 
Yeah, it does. It does have a religious overtone to it, I guess. Bob Nelson, who sadly a recently deceased uh, member of the editorial board of regulation and uh, an economist who worked for the federal government for 20 some odd years as a in the think tank within the Department of Interior and then went on to a successful professorial career at the University of Maryland. His work towards the end of his life was on environmentalism as the new American religion. Uh, and so, well, so I think this feeds on air. I mean, sort of not only is science the new religion, but environmentalism in worshiping science is also environmentalism itself is a, is a belief system that borders on on the because they talk about the sacred and the earth and the. I think it's important. I mean, we're also not, to cost we're also benefits. not degrading environmentalism here because it's important if you do view it as a preference. Um, like Aaron mentioned years ago, we did an episode touching on similar themes with you yes. about yeah. make, letting environmentalist preferences count. I mean, if, if you, yes, you we're say, neutral. We, we, yeah, we're again. I hope the viewer, the listeners, do not think we're making fun of science or because I'm I'm a science nerd, and yet I just uh, I want people with advanced training to be a, to very careful about what therefores come out of the knowledge. Well, that the, they have the the observation was made. I read recently that one way that you can see that a lot of environmentalists sort of just have preferences is with the antagonism that many have to nuclear power, because if the if it's an aesthetic revulsion to like consumerism and like the modern city state, then if you came along and said this isn't true of all environmentalists, but some, and you came along and you said, hey, you're right about global warming and greenhouse gases, we just said take out the factories that are powering our lives that do carbon emissions and replace them with nuclear and we can all continue to go about our business. So for some environmentalists, they go, well, that I want it more. Like I don't want us to continue to go about our business on like a spiritual level. I don't want us to continue to go to shopping malls and buy things that we just throw away and all these kind of things that are aesthetically revolting to them. And that's fine. I mean, I, that's 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 justified aesthetic position preferences, uh, but it doesn't get solved by science and then coming back and saying, "I oppose nuclear power because the science says it's not worth it." Yeah. I mean, part of this is uh, to go. Let's go to libertarianism slash economics and try to understand the boundary between private and something beyond private. In other words, what sphere of the world do you have control over? And then what does it mean for the world to impinge on that? So I'm thinking of if you're really different and you have, and say the Amish or um, Anabaptist movements or very, very orthodox Jews in Brooklyn or <laughs> or so Sa- fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. So in other words, if you separate yourself from the world and live your life the way you want it to, but what rights, where, where does the right to control your sphere uh, end and the right for the outside world? So does it matter that the rest of the world is consumerist and, and you're a a back to the lander and you live in Alaska somewhere. And so uh, it, it might it, matter on the abstract. It's going to Aaron's religion point that, and again, that's not insulting. It's more of an observation, but on the point where you can live in, you know, your Christian community 
and there might be people engaging in homosexual acts very far away from you and you want to ban it because you just don't even like the idea that that's happening and you can live in your rural Alaska community. This, this is right. you know, right. not assuming cata- uh, environmental catastrophe, uh, which someone probably going to put a comment on this, but like uh, with some cost of global warming, but you live in your rural community and then you just don't like that there are people doing this kind of behavior that is aesthetically unappealing to you. Right. Now, I, wanna, I, I do want to get to this particular matter one because in this blog post you wrote, is a very good job of explaining how this all works out. And I like the particulate matter thing because it just seems for my whole life that I've been paying any amount of political attention. Every time a Republican administration gets into office, you have attacks on them for on a, usually environmental purposes, for environmental policy, saying that they're they're anti science and they're killing people. Um, and sometimes that's because you know you come in and you say this administration wanted to lo- lower the amount of particulate matter in the air to five parts per billion or something, and and I've decided to halt that rule and let it be at nine parts per billion. And then someone says, well, you've killed 100,000 people or something because of the four parts per billion right. that you'd allowed. Right. And that's what this whole debate is about. Right. Um, so let's, again, can what role can science play in the determination of exposure to stuff, pollutants? One possibility, and here's where science would be in a strongest position, would be if in the, imagine, I know it's radio or, or, or audio. Uh, it's the um, internet. Peter. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's the radio. But it's a radio show coming up tonight from Peter Van Noyen. Here we go. He's a cracking, ripstock young man coming out of upstate New York. Go for it, Peter. Uh, um, That's my horrible radio announcer. Caleb's going to write about this. Imagine the x-axis in our discussion is a, amount of pollutant to which you're exposed. And then the y-axis is the mortality rate or morbidity rate from exposure. If there were a, a large discontinuity in the function in that XY space, so that what scientists call a threshold effect, if you got below a certain amount of exposure to PM, then whew, no costs, right? And if you were above that threshold, then lots of costs. This is It's not the dose, it's the poison kind of thing. Yeah. Or so so it, that's not poison, it's the dose. Let's so, assume yeah. that those stylized facts were true, then the what we've called so far in this discussion, the faults therefore from science wouldn't be so false. In other words, the if-then discussion in a pollution context would be, wow, if we cut back below this level, we really will not observe any health effects at all. Ooh, okay. Then you could say, wow, I wait pollution, diff- you know, people wait pollution differently in the costs and benefits and the jobs and okay. But... That discontinuity would certainly inform the benefits of many bystanders or, or the, their preferences. Turns out that we don't think PM is like that as a pollutant, that it has no threshold. And therefore, it's a continuous exposure health effect function. And therefore, what the Clean Act requires is that the EPA designate a level of exposure below which there are no health effects is, in fact, impossible. <laughs> that would mean they'd have to ban all factories and industrialization, right? But, but since they can't do that, they then have to, in effect, weigh costs and benefits in their decision. But they can't say they're doing that because the law doesn't allow that. So the the PM and science debate is is odd because 
those who want less exposure are invoking the notion that science can tell us what the right amount of exposure is, but that's really only plausible for things that have large threshold defects, and that's probably not the case here. So that means all real-world conventional pollution health effect discussions are, in fact, really economic cost-benefit discussions in in disguise, and science actually doesn't have the role that anyone thinks it does. You also, well, I think you're trying to find the quote here where the Obama administration and the Bush administration did different things based on the same study. Oh, that was for, that was ozone. <laughs> yeah. That was ozone, ozone exposure. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, it says, says the uh, uh, under Bush in 2007, the EPA proposed. I'm reading from Peter's blog post here, setting the standard for ozone between 0.07 and 0.075 parts per million. The scientific justification was the interpretation of two studies by Dr. William Adams, and, the, and then the Obama administration said it was going to had to mandate between. Point zero six and point zero seven, based on the same paper. Correct. And then the author came out and said the reinterpretation of the standard errors in the statistical sense by the Obama administration wasn't correct. So the author then refuted the more liberal interpretation. Anyway, you, it, it just to me that's the absurd nihilistic weirdness uh, universe one gets into if you think. If you ignore costs. If, well, if, because the Clean Air Act says you have to. I mean, that, so we've said this before in, in our discussions, which is you got to go back to the statute and have a more rational discussion about pollu- conventional pollution and health. But it turns out the society doesn't want to have such a discussion. <laughs> Instead, they, they want science to decide. I mean, that's what's, that's what's so odd is the public, uh, may not even if they listen to our broad, our discussion here, they may want to punt on this. They seem to. They want somebody with with you know advanced training to decide for them what to do about this. Because to have the discussion about how much the factories are aren't worth or the jobs or the whatever it seems they they want to punt on that. Or maybe I'm missing. How much is general mystique around scientists? Um, so we've for the last several months, my family has watched a lot of fifties monster feature movies because my soon to be seven year old son is into scary movies and monsters and things Even like the Blob and like Day of the Triffids and things like this. Or yeah, and them, <laughs> them, okay, and, right. Cold War sci-fi. Yeah, and Invasion right. of the Body. Snatchers. And we're we're looking for movies that. He can watch that aren't like – he doesn't immediately identify as, oh, this is for kids but also isn't going to terrify a seven-year-old and these 50s creature features seem to fit that bill. But one of the striking things in these movies is the scientists. There's always the scientists. More often than not, they have like German accent which is kind of odd but they, they usually not, are not, not American. Really, given when they were making right, but, they, <laughs> uh, but they, have, they have some sort there of accent. There is something wrong with this equinism. Yeah. But, but then it's, it's – you know, and they're called professor and they're scientists but the way they're portrayed is these guys are basically the smartest people who ever existed and they know everything about everything. Right, it's it's just it's this kind of universal knowledge that they possess, um, and scientists don't play. We don't have movies with scientists like that quite as much anymore. But Twister. <laughs> but I wonder how much of that that kind of attitude of 
um, it's not just that. So we, there's the facts and values distinction, right? Um, and the science can perhaps determine facts uh, maybe better than other methods can. But that the kinds of people who are smart enough to be scientists also probably know a fair amount, have good ideas about the value side of things too. And so if we're going to defer to the judgment of anyone on these issues, which we – you know, in a system like ours, you have to defer to other people's judgment on all sorts of things. Um, it's probably better to defer to the judgment of really smart people than it is to defer to the judgment of – the guy who just won a popularity contest to get a seat in the house. I'd like to point all of our listeners to uh, Man or Astro Man videos. I was this is a surf punk band, Peter. This is a little bit, but we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. The miracle of genuine pirate. It's it's the kind of scientist you're talking about uh, who solved the problem with the monster and things like this. Um, you know, I um, I have these little trite phrases I used in my classes and I still use in my lectures with undergraduates. And I we talk about this. I always say, I can't give you answers. I can describe for you the choices you face. I mean, and I think you've, people want answers and, um, people look to smart people for answers. I mean, it must go back a long time. And, um, the, 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 your science fifties movies, that's very interesting to, to describe the cultural status of the And I think it's not just smartness because we all recognize that there are very smart people in all sorts of different fields, but that science is unbiased, right? So it's an unbiased form supp of smartness. And so we can we can trust not just the facts they're bringing us, but because they're the kinds of people who are unbiased, it's, their judgment calls must also be. It's supposed to be a discussion among smart people about the reproducibility of results, right? Science is not an end game; it's a process where we talk about, I've tested this this way and here's what I've found. What do you think? And then a referee, right? Another smart person says, have you thought about this and this and this and this? And you go, whoop. Yes, and then for the ones you haven't thought about, you try to fake it and get the article published, and that game is is what science is about. But it's supposed to be neutral. It's not supposed to care about the. It's just into whatever results we find, and yet we are human beings, and we have priors, and and so many of the the normative issues that we've been talking about today enter into even scientists. Science, even though technically it should not. I I want to ask about uh, another thing that you wrote regarding the science, but even the way that the public policy issue is either ignored or turns into something different, and that's CAFE standards, uh, which are what is it, what does that stand for? Uh, Corporate uh, average fuel, fuel economy. Okay. Yes. <laughs> now they they came into being for reasons that had nothing to do with pollution per se or greenhouse gas emissions came about in 1975 as a political solution to a political problem which was gas prices so what do you do about gas prices well you could say that consumers are smart and if a product comes out there that whose extra cost will save them lots of daily expenditures on gasoline they'll buy it another but american politics tends to Say something called people are, are helpless and then something called corporations are in charge. So we're going to make 
We're going to make corporations make Sorry, more the, fuel efficient so cars. So they were saying that the, the, the consumer was not price sensitive? Was not the, capable, was, was not capable of making decisions about long, long term benefits over immediate costs. Correct. Yeah. And plus there was also the worry about Japanese imports. I mean, cafe was also a protectionist device at the time. Uh, so it, it was a twofer. And that that has all been lost in the current discussion because cafe still exists on the books and it's been repurposed as a climate change CO2 gas emission reduction device, which it, it was not ever intended for at all. Um, so the current scrum is over the Obama administration's de- decision to uh, mandate 54.5 miles per gallon as the fleet average uh, and then that the trumpet that the that ruling under Obama did have a midterm revisit, which happened to occur during the Trump administration. They in turn have said, "We're going to freeze where we are now, and we're not going to go further like Obama wanted us to." To justify that decision, they have to have a rulemaking process, and then they've used the economics literature to then make some cost-benefit analysis of to try to justify that this actually would um, be cost beneficial for the country rather than uh, what the Obama administration said, which is, oh, no, we have to keep going in order to maximize benefits relative to cost. So it's become a very arcane discussion that I won't go into about whether the price of new cars and new car- used cars would rise or not given this freeze. And if the prices did or didn't do what people think they would do, would the total vehicle fleet of the United States grow or shrink? The Trump administration has said, they said that the price of used, if we keep the standard the same, then the price of used cars would go down. And that in turn would allow them to be scrapped more. And that in turn would make the total vehicle fleet size of the U.S. go down. And that in turn would reduce auto fatalities. So the main, This is like cash for clunkers too. Some of the debate we have with cash for clunkers. So the big benefit kick out of the Trump administration freeze in the cost benefit analysis done for this rule is alleged to come from fewer auto fatalities. Some economists of a more liberal stripe have taken on this cost benefit analysis and said, Oh, goodness. The prices will go down for used cars, but they'll go down for new cars as well. And then all the vehicle fleet reduction goes away. And then so there's this scrum that's in, in the Ipurin article from The Washington Post that said, woo, this economists have said that this Trump econ analysis was bogus and therefore we should not freeze cafe. Right. You can't use this cost benefit analysis as a rationale. I actually agree with the economic critique. I mean, they, they really did <laughs> the assumptions done to get the Trump cost benefit thing to work really are probably look pretty bogus to me. And so the econ critique is correct, but I still think no, therefore should come out of it because cafe is crazy. A cra- I mean, a CO2 tax is, well, cafe is estimated to be six times more expensive per unit CO2 reduction. Than just a straight up tax or cap. Right. Yeah. So that's the big econ cost benefit, therefore. So they've confined their analysis to this little scrum. And it looks like the liberal economists are saying that the conservative economists are wrong. And I 
think they are correct in that. But the big picture is CAFE is not a very cost-effective policy at all for dealing with CO2 emissions, if in fact that's something you think we need to deal with. It's kind of interesting is going back to the theme of the talk where you're trying to – I mean obviously we, we do measure the value of lives when you do regulatory policy. It's inevitable. Um, people think it's very distasteful, but it would be crazy to not do that. And obviously, deaths matter a lot. As and so, we're talking about preferences of whatever. So we could say preferences for cars with with big, you know, big cars, Hummers, things like this. But like, there could be auto fatalities. And then there's of course scientists who come in and say, if the global warming happens, then we'll have fatalities from fires and things like this. And it's all this sort of war about cost benefit analysis over something that doesn't actually do much about the thing that they're talking about. Correct. Correct. That's my. I mean, it. Again, there's scrums and meta scrums and then big questions. And if you really want to invoke science as an answer, doing it within the cafe context of our study is better than your study. Yeah, but the big point is none of this makes sense <laughs> from a scientific <laughs> point of view. That That's at least my view as an outsider. And that's, that's an interesting point about the way that science enters into this stuff because it doesn't – we don't tend to use scientific findings as a, OK, let's tape it take a big step back and say, this is our overall goal and this is what the data now tells us about either whether what we're doing is getting us towards that goal or here's a better way to approach that goal faster, cheaper, whatever else. Um, it's never it's never that big step back. It's instead – or not never but most of the time. It's instead – we have these pre-existing frameworks, CAFE standards or the Clean Air Act um, that have political constituencies, um, so people who are invested in continuing them or people who simply are invested in them in the sense that they built their whole career around understanding these things, litigating these things, arguing about these things. And My so, third house was paid for with CAFE litigation. <laughs> so they don't, they, they don't think outside – of yeah, it. Correct. Um, P- not Peter really was capable. joking, by the way. He, he, he only have. has seven houses. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does not but, have three houses. But like – and so then the science, whatever the science tells us gets squeezed into correct. those yeah. small frameworks instead of enabling the big step back, which also because the science, that squeezing of it requires massaging and interpreting and picking and choosing instead of taking the whole picture, it politicizes it even further because it gives even more opportunities for legitimate critiques of, oh, you're cherry picking or that's not really what it said. No, I mean, there is this intense debate now within the auto transportation gas mileage econ community, and yes, there is one, about scrappage rates about whether the auto fleet will or will not get bigger or smaller because of cafe decisions. And I am hitting my head as I read these things. And my colleague Jeff Myron says, Peter, that's not the important question, the, which is what Aaron's saying. So how did we allow science to get confined, to confine us to this weird little box that everyone has forgotten the origins of, which was the gas crisis in, in the 70s? All this said then, if we are to be good voters, good citizens, maybe good policymakers, legislators, whatever, how should we approach using science in our policymaking? We've, we've got this new evidence that says something. 
how do we connect that these new facts to the values or at least not get into all of the problems that we've talked about for the last 50 minutes? In my view, what science can do is inform your own preferences. It, it, whether it's vaccines, whether it's private goods, how should I live my life? What kind of food should I eat? What, what, you know, what's the evidence for the health effects of this or that or the other thing? So scientific advancements, it can inform one's preferences about how to live one's life. And when it involves private goods, if you, if the science is correct and then you use that science to change your own behavior, you'll, you yourself will receive the benefits. When it comes to policy and public goods, right? Collective decisions, you start with the same process, but changing your own preferences about what you think policy should be is just the start of the process. The science then informs all 7 billion other human beings on the planet about the same question. And then we collectively have to make decisions either within localities, states, countries, or the whole world. And all the problems of collective choice that this podcast and others at Cato and Cato's work talks about come into play, which is aggregating individual preferences into collective choices is difficult and subject to all sorts of anomalies and weirdness that uh, uh, there's also science on that, right, called public choice theory. So, um, so private goods, science, you can get benefits right away by changing your own life. For collective goods, science doesn't eliminate any of the hassles or choices or values in, in making collective choices that we already had. It just can inform our preferences to be different. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.